You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals' employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. I'm going to tell you a story, fragments of a story, really, about a song that I've been listening to and researching for several years now. The woman who originally sang the song was enslaved in Augusta, Georgia in the 1830s and 40s. She was known as Tina. When I first learned about Tina, I had no idea what her name was and only the faintest idea of when she might have lived. I ran across her song in a book of sheet music called The American Song Bag that Carl Sandburg had published in 1927, tucked away in this huge volume of 280 songs. I happened to notice a piece with a startling title, Jungle Mammy Song. I rolled my eyes, assuming that this was a holdover from minstrelsy and the racial stereotypes the genre helped to popularize. But looking more carefully, I saw that the song wasn't a stage number at all. It's in an unfamiliar language, and I read the headnote, which explains that, quote, Margaret Johnson of Augusta, Georgia, heard her mother sing this year on year, as the mother had learned it from the singing year on year of a Negro woman who comforted children with it. So, uh, According to this description, this tune seemed to be passed down by presumably a white Georgia family and perhaps a family whose children were cared for by the singer. I concluded that this must have to do with the presence of the Mammy iconography in the title. Given the non-English lyrics, I immediately wondered whether or not the woman who originally sang the song um, had been a survivor of the Middle Passage or perhaps member of an enslaved community maintaining strong African traditions. With Augusta being so close to the Georgia Sea Islands and Gullah communities, that seemed plausible. If the singer had been enslaved when she sang the music, then this was a really unique artifact, um, and one far more interesting than Sandberg's racially coded title would suggest. You see, notated examples of music, vernacular music by enslaved women, are exceedingly rare. The textual trace of Tina's music immediately presented to me problems that are familiar to scholars of slavery. So often, the archival sources about enslaved people's lives come to us shrouded behind the prejudices and beliefs of white people who created the documents, people who were themselves deeply complicit in the practice of slavery. Most Bonds people were explicitly forbidden from obtaining alphabetic literacy, and those who did manage to learn to read and write and have the opportunity to have their works published or preserved in written form, they represent a very small and exceptional group. By contrast, enslaved people participated in abundant expressive genres that were heard widely. And these performance traditions revolutionized global music, leaving their mark on innumerable traditions um, across the African diaspora and the globe. And what I'm saying is that the legacy of enslaved musicians is itself tremendous, but that the written historical record 
does not do it justice. I'm in the process of writing a book on the literary history of African Atlantic music from about 1630 to 1830. It was this research project that led me to explore Tina's song, but it's Tina's song and her story that have really taught me how to listen. Getting back to the moment when I first saw Tina's song in the book, I was originally dismayed, dismayed at the fact that her name was not recorded in the book at all, that her legacy was clouded by Sandberg's racist framing. But at the same time, I wondered, could the music itself, its sounds, teach me something about the song and its singer, what it might have meant to her? As I took up the task of trying to hear the music, I began a process that would ultimately lead me to discover traces of Tina's performance across voices and continents and archives. And this is the story that I'm going to be telling you. I'm a musician, so the first thing I did was try to learn to sing the music. And here I am back in 2013 trying, trying to listen to Tina's song for the first time. When I heard myself sing the song in the recording, I was immediately frustrated with the limits of my interpretation, if not the limits of the notation more generally. When I learn new songs using notation, I tend to sort of slip into the vernacular of um, Western art music and, and the way I was taught to sing classically. And you can hear this in the recording the way I use what's called a clean attack to begin the phrases and a glottal stop on ah, yeah. Um, but even though I was frustrated with uh, my singing of the song, it was really pleasant to sing, especially those first few notes, ah, yeah, which feel a bit like sighing. There's a saying that uh, lullabies are really about soothing those who sing them rather than the children who listen to them and as a mother of a small child I can I can testify to that being the case. So I wondered if this song helped to soothe the singer as she labored and um, was forced to care for other people's children. I wondered immediately if she might have sung it to her own children um, as well as to uh, those of the family that she cared for. Knowing how often children perished under slavery, and how often mothers were separated from their kin. Uh, I thought about whether or not the singing of such a song might bring up quite tender memories for the singer, uh, if not of her own children, perhaps of her mother or child she had lost. Was the song a source of pain, of comfort, or of humor? Was it simply a way to shush pastoring children or to pass the time? I did not know. 
When I first encountered Tina's song, I happened to be teaching a singing class to young girls at a nonprofit arts organization, the Walltown Children's Theater, which is located in the historically black neighborhood of Walltown in Durham, North Carolina, where I was in graduate school at Duke at the time. The theater, which is known for its excellent dance program, is run by and predominantly serves black and Latinx young people. Uh, I wanted to teach the song to my students as I was learning it to see what they thought of it and how they might interpret the music. I showed up to class with pretty heavy research questions on my mind, but the girls quickly lightened the mood and took a playful approach to the music. They were all between the ages of uh, 7 and 12. I didn't share Sandberg's disparaging title with the young women, but I did tell them that the song was sung by an African or African-descended woman to children and that she had probably been enslaved. The Spanish speakers in the class laughed at one of the lyrics that sounded like a curse word in Spanish, and we all wondered what lunda and bamboo meant. We had no translation or pronunciation whatsoever at that point, but thinking through the musical possibilities brought the sounds to life. I made this recording of the singing students because we were working on learning songs by ear and I wanted them to hear what they sounded like and to try to get on the same pitches. After all, it was a singing class. But later, back home, when I listened to the recording, I heard their errors quite differently. In the recording, the girls' pitch slides downward throughout the piece as if their voices are determined to find a more comfortable key. They reach unison in certain notes and stray and wander on others. To me, their performance exemplifies music as a process and how a single tune can evolve and yet stay recognizably the same as it circulates across voices and time. Needless to say, I've learned a lot from the students, and not just in terms of Tina's song. Sharing music with the young women in my classes taught me how to think about the act of musical creation as a powerful space of possibility. After learning the song with the students, I published an essay in an online journal of experimental history called The Appendix. Uh, It was a special issue on sound. In that piece, I wrote about my experience with the um, young singers and reflected on using performance as a research method. I wrote that though she remains distant and opaque to me, hidden among the silences of history and the words framing her performance in the book, Her music is frequently in my ears and on my mind. It may be that knowing her song means simply that, to know it. The song, then, is not a portal into an understanding of a particular woman's story, but an opportunity to witness something that her voice made known. 
Rather than repackaging the music and its creator like Sandberg did, this time I'd rather just listen. So that's what I wrote in that essay online. Um, And though I concluded the piece with an insistence of the value of listening to the historical subject, I really had no idea at that time that her story would continue to speak. To my great surprise, several months later, I received an email from a descendant of the family Sandberg had referenced in the description. I followed up with a phone call, and I learned from the woman named Maggie that the singer of this song was named Tina, and that the family referred to this music as Tina's lullaby. They had no idea where Sandberg had learned the music um, or that he had published anything about it at all. My hunch was right. The family had enslaved Tina. Uh, And not only that, she was said to have lost a child, um, a nine-year-old boy who died during the Middle Passage, according to their uh, family's oral history. For over nine generations, they have passed down her song along with a handful of details from her biography. The descendant shared with me details about her family's ancestry that have helped me undertake archival research to verify some of their claims and uncover other details about Tina's life. I also learned from the descendant that in 1961, a scholar had researched Tina's song and purported to discover her African origins. The woman I spoke to was unable to access this scholarship, of course, because it was locked behind paywalls, and that was one of the reasons why she had gone Googling trying to find out more about his research. So now that I knew the singer's name, I had better keywords and uh, very quickly found an article written by a famous Africanist ethnomusicologist, Hugh Tracy. Um, More on that and the reception of Tina's song in parts of Africa in the mid-20th century in a bit. But first, I'd like to talk more about the family's oral history of Tina and their practice of passing the song down among generations of their family. Their transformation of Tina's lullaby into a kind of sonic family heirloom is a troubling story of its own. And like Sandberg, their family narrative is also shaped by the mammy stereotype and the way it has helped to romanticize black domestic laborers for many white audiences, including white Southerners especially. As a white Southerner myself, I see in this family's characterization and and storytelling of Tina echoes of my own family's complicity in the afterlives of slavery. I was indoctrinated from an early age in the lost cause narrative and taught to see, or, or rather taught not to see, the profound racial inequalities in my rural southern community in my hometown of Marshall, Texas. It is my experience with these stories um, in this false narratives of history that motivates my scholarship and compels me to try to tell Tina's story in a way that does greater justice to her legacy and that of women like her, women whose care and time and energy and even music were taken up like possessions that could be owned and exchanged and inherited. There's no way to take out the violence from this story, to root it out and cast it aside. I'm as bound up in it as Tina was. I'm a part of that violence, even as I try to undo it, to make it plain. This fact has caused me to reflect endlessly throughout this project 
And while I have no good solutions, I do feel certain that it is worth it to try to uncover narratives of enslaved women's lives, even when they are so irrevocably entangled in the work of white supremacy. I'm inspired in this regard by the work of black feminist historians of slavery in particular, who have taught scholars how to revisit the troubling archives and wring from them story after story, bringing to life the struggles and survival of so many um, who scholars have long thought to be lost to history. I'm thinking here of uh, work by, of course, Sadia Hartman, Jennifer Morgan, um, the recent book by Marisa Fuentes, and so many others who have raised the bar, rewritten the script, and illuminated worlds. So here is Tina's story as I've been able to piece it together. Some details come from the family's oral history, a good bit of which I've been able to corroborate with archival documents, but many details remain somewhat speculative. Tina was probably born on the African continent in the late 1700s or early 1800s. She was smuggled to the Americas at a time when the international slave trade was illegal, and because of that may have traveled through the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico before eventually being sold in Charleston to the Spencer family patriarch. It is said that she was a mother and that her only child, a son, died during the Middle Passage. Little is known of her experiences before she was purchased by a man named Alexander Spencer. He died in 1831, and so Tina was purchased before then, certainly, and I believe around the year 1830. She's remembered by the Spencer descendants as being very tall and beautiful. Alexander Spencer was a Scottish immigrant, a merchant who lived in Augusta, Georgia, he purchased Tina for his daughter to take care of her two young children who were all living in his household. The house included Alexander Spencer, this widowed daughter, Isabella Bones, later Coscary, as well as 16 enslaved people whose names are cataloged in his estate inventory after his death in 1831. They are, along with Tina, Louis, and Maria, and their three children, Charles, Jack, Celia, and her child James, Henry, Washington, Mary, young Louis, Clarissa, Harriet, Celia, and Tamar. While enslaved by the Spencer family, Tina reportedly never learned to speak English and communicated using her own unique set of hand gestures, a curious fact that has survived in the memories of the descendants. When caring for the children, Tina sang a song that became etched into their memories. Descendants of the Spencer family recall that she lived in the family's household long enough to nurse two generations of children, but I've been unable to confirm that. Despite my best efforts, I do not know when or how Tina died, nor whether or not she lived to be emancipated. There are just two surviving documents that mention Tina's name and a few more that lend some insight into her story. All of these are found in Augusta, Georgia, um, and most in the Augusta Genealogical Society, where I've been fortunate to have had the assistance of some very kind and knowledgeable volunteer researchers. Just this past spring, I traveled to the archive where I stood side by side with Gracie, a society member who had poured over the records on my behalf, hauling huge books off the shelf, looking for any mention of enslaved women named Tina. 
to be honest, when I traveled to Augusta and walked along the Confederate monument-lined Broad Street to the building where the AGS is housed, I expected to find an organization dedicated to the preservation of white family histories. And I was pleasantly surprised to find many elderly volunteers who were busy cataloging the names of enslaved people for their own database, which they're compiling, to help make it easier for African-American genealogists uh, and anyone interested in learning more about enslaved people's lives. Just behind the Augusta Genealogical Society stands Springfield Baptist Church, which was founded in 1844 and is one of the oldest independent black churches in the South. It was also the first home of Morehouse College. I don't have reason to believe that Tina was a member there, but the presence of the congregation just beyond the walls of the Genealogical Society inspired me to consider the institutions and communities that Tina may have been connected with beyond the walls of the home in which she was enslaved and the archives that now separate these worlds and their textual records um, and yet also bind them. Of course, this is the story of the South, the story of America and its entangled histories. The work before us as scholars and cultural historians and literary historians, I believe, is to bring greater justice to the telling of our collective past, in particular by continuing to illuminate the experiences of African Americans, and especially women like Tina, who didn't speak English, who labored in the domestic sphere, who made music not on a stage, but for an audience of children, children who would grow up and lay false claim to her story and her sounds and to enslave her. There are just two documents that bear Tina's name, and they are the estate documents created after Spencer's death, where each of the enslaved people in the household are listed, along with their monetary value. Strangely, Tina is valued at $5, uh, a very curious sum, given that each of her fellow slaves are valued at least at $100, um, and many far more than that. Dana Ramey Berry has recently written a book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, in which she explains some of the logic behind the prices given to enslaved people across different time periods. She writes that young children had the smallest value, as did infirm, disabled, or elderly people. I don't have reason to believe that Tina was particularly elderly at this point, but I do know that she did not speak English, so I wonder if this was somehow seen as detracting from her value. Just a few years later, the elder Spencer's estate was liquidated, and Tina is said to have been sold for a mere 12 cents. These details haunt me because they remind me of the way Tina's life was construed as capital, the way she appears to have been perceived as being of little value, even among a family who has so cherished her memory and her song. After reading through some records held at the county uh, courthouse concerning the divvying up of the estate among Spencer's two children, I think that Tina was purchased by Isabella from the estate and in order to keep her in their household, and this might explain the low value. I very much tried to find any evidence of Tina's existence after this sale. I considered also the possibility that she may have been sold off elsewhere, um, and so I traced several Tinas who lived on other plantations. I even found uh, another woman in records from a nearby family who was also valued $0 in a similar estate document a few years later. Gracie, the society volunteer, and I wondered if this could be Tina, and if, and if so, 
she would have been sold to a very large plantation in the outskirts of of Augusta. We found the location of this plantation and observed uh, the large number of slaves um, who lived in this more rural agricultural setting. And unexpectedly, I, I found myself hoping that this was Tina, that she had been sold to a large plantation, which may sound strange, but I realized that living in town with a merchant family, she would have been somewhat confined and possibly far away from a community of others like herself. The homes of the Spencer family were sort of on the outskirts of town, so they wouldn't have been a particularly comfortable walking distance to the busy town center. And I imagine that if Tina lived on a plantation, she probably would have been tasked with caring for the children there, as elders in enslaved communities sometimes were. But eventually, after chasing a lead for many days across numerous documents, I realized that the other plantation was home to a Tina long before the singer Tina would have been sold. So just like that, a good bit of Tina's possible biography vanished. And I was left to conclude that the family was right, that she lived with them for several generations. But to emancipation? I do not know. And ironically, the major challenge to the archival research is that Isabella Bones and her husband and their adult children all lived for a long time. And unless someone dies uh, or slaves are sold and there happens to be a trace of the sale or they're part of a large plantation with careful record keeping, they just don't appear in the traditional textual archives. But although the written records of Tina's life are slim, she does not vanish Her song traveled long after her life ended, even making its way back to the African continent and to communities that may have been her homeland. The fact that parts of Tina's story were preserved as an accompaniment to her song tells us something, I think, about the way that her voice was heard, the way that it rang out, perhaps amidst the comparative silence of her inability or refusal to speak English. As the descendant suggested to me in a reflective moment, maybe Tina's choice not to speak was her way of saying, you may own me, but you don't own my mind. Indeed, how ironic then that the family held on so tightly to the song for so many years. Was the sound of Tina's song like a burr that attached itself to the memories of her enslavers, traveling across eras and continents, determined to seed her story across the decades? But along with the sounds, her silence traveled too, a profound opacity that seems to frustrate those who would presume to understand it, including, I must admit, myself. So let us listen to yet another trace of Tina's song recorded here by a Spencer descendant. This is Mrs. Johnson, born around 1880, singing the song in the late 1950s. I'll explain more about the recording in a moment, but... This woman, Mrs. Johnson, was the granddaughter of one of the children that Tina sang to. At some point in the 1950s, the Spencer descendants became curious about Tina's African origins, and so they reached out to a librarian, Ruth Bartholomew, at Payne University and HBCU in their hometown of Augusta. 
This librarian then wrote to Hugh Tracy, the British musicologist um, and immigrant to South Africa who founded the journal African Music and the International Library of African Music, where the recording you just heard is housed. His legacy is in some ways on par with a figure like Alan Lomax in the U.S., in that he helped to constitute a field of study, but did so as a white scholar who benefited financially from in some ways racializing the performance traditions of black musicians, and he did so under apartheid South Africa. Tracy asked for a recording of Tina's song, and so the elderly Mrs. Johnson recorded the music as well as her family's recollections of Tina and shipped them to Tracy in Grahamstown, South Africa. He attempted to determine Tina's origins, an effort very much in tune with anthropological studies of African-American culture of the day. He argued that she must have been from a Bantu language culture in Eastern Africa and crafted a Manyika translation of the song, placing Tina's origins in Zimbabwe or Mozambique. There's a lot to be skeptical about Tracy's methods, but some of his assertions may have been valid. He does not note it, and it was Tsitsi Jaji who pointed it out to me, but Tina, short for Tina She, is a very common Shona name. It means God is with us. Tracy wrote an article about the music and recorded a radio broadcast about it that is also now housed at ILAM. Where did it come from, Tina's African lullaby? Now, that was the question I was asked recently by a friend writing from America. The next step was to listen very carefully to Mrs. Johnson and hear exactly how she pronounced her words. Eyatarumbambo wakideze Ye Nikalu Mailanda, Nikalu Lami Prua, Nikalu Lami Wa. Now, the word Tarumba makes sense, and so did Nikalu Lami, if you turned it into Ndikarurami with R's instead of L's. Now, two of us here at the Library of African Music spoke the Bantu languages which are found between the Limpopo and the Zambezi rivers. Now, I'd like you to hear those same words spoken not by me, but by an African, by Daniele Mabuto, who speaks Chimanyika and comes from near that part of Rhodesia. Yes, I ran quickly to his father, the chief. Indeed, I have sent a messenger. And now... Where shall I go to straight away? Then I'll go straight away. Tracy's research was later picked up and reworked into a feature in the leftist anti-colonialist newspaper African Mail, published in Lusaka, which was at the time part of colonial Rhodesia and is now Zambia. A reader of that newspaper named W. Kasawira later wrote a letter challenging Tracy's interpretation of Tina's song, claiming to have spoken with an old woman in Malawi who offers an alternate interpretation and translation of the lyrics. This woman claimed Tina as an ancestor of her people and said that this song means the following. Be praised, Father of Dazi. I can go nowhere, Mother. Poor I am. Where can I stay? Perhaps if can... Where can I stay, mother? Nowhere. The Malawian elder offers a haunting translation, and I can't help but think of Tina's displacement as a survivor of the Middle Passage, living under slavery in a foreign land. Where can I stay, mother? Nowhere. 
The child in the lyrics also echoes the displacement of the diaspora more broadly and the wandering of the song's meaning across the eras. We can no more verify this translation than we can verify any of the other details of Tina's life and song. And and yet, in a way, I know that it is true because I heard it in the song myself. So what's the takeaway? Above all, I think the story of Tina's lullaby can teach us that just because someone's life and experiences don't initially appear to be reflected in traditional sources or even in public historical memory, it does not mean, not at all, that they did not leave a tremendous legacy. Those legacies may be experienced in sound, in performance, in image, in practices of care, in religious expression, in landscape, in so many modalities that shape our lives but that we need creative research methods to explore. So many scholars are undertaking this kind of work, and especially those working on the eras of slavery. Bringing new questions and new methods to our research allows for a shift in perspective so that even when our research fails to unearth and reveal stories and lives that have been lost, it can still reorient our own engagement with the world. And in fact, it may be more important to tune into the things that we don't know and can't know than the things that we do know. Many aspects of Tina's personal history are lost. There is a world of meaning yet told in her song. And now we have as many stories to tell as there are versions of the song. The story of Tina's song as she sang it under slavery, and the story of its proliferation across equally racialized and troubling context in the 20th century. From the Spencers to Sandberg, the story of its reception in apartheid South Africa and colonial Rhodesia, and, of course, the story of my own exploration of the music with my students, with you. These stories all intersect, of course, but they aren't the same. And perhaps it is impossible to mute the one story and the telling of the other, and yet ultimately this story is plain and one that has already been told richly in song. The music-making of enslaved women in the domestic sphere and in the spaces of the plantation transformed the worlds around them. Women who helped create the performance traditions of the African diaspora across the Americas, women whose names we do not know, but whose songs we know by heart, whose techniques and innovations proliferate, women whose stories have been preserved in the archives of sound in abundant and curious ways. For their assistance and support with this project, I'd like to thank the Augusta Genealogical Society and especially Gracie Joyce, the International Library of African Music, Lee Watkins, Shiloh Marsh, Liesel Visage, and Diane Thram, Maggie McRae, Carson Holloway, Cynthia Greenlee, Louise Mankies, Allison Kersine, Alicia Hines, and Sitsi Jaji, the Walltown Children's Theater, and especially my singing students there, and Cynthia Penhalal. I'd also like to thank Kristen Mariah, Jenny Stover, Alex Black, and Brianna Wells, my co-panelists at a recent ASA panel on race and sound in the American Archive, and the editorial team at The Appendix, and especially Benjamin Breen. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.